Hello, and welcome to the Nature City Podcast, the show where we get to know our wild neighbors. In this episode, I sit down with Kirby England, a professional biologist in the province of Alberta, to talk about coexisting with a fellow ecosystem engineer. I'm Adrian Werner, your host and fellow naturalist. This is episode three, Urban Beavers. Let's put on our shoes and see what's out there. If you could say your name and what title you want to be referred to as. Sure. So my name's Kirby England, and I'm a professional biologist in the province of Alberta. All right. Let's get started. Um, sure. I know that you did a lot on Saskatoon's beaver population. So I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit about what you learned about Saskatoon's beavers. Yeah, definitely. So we learned quite a few things, actually. There, there hadn't really been much of a census ever completed on beaver populations. There was some known, and of course, the city was engaged in trapping and some other forms of management. And of course, trappers had to report their catch, but only for broad areas. So it wasn't really known how many beavers were within Saskatoon, more within the wildlife management area. And so couple things we learned. One, we learned that, of course, beavers live within the city. That's not news to anybody. In fact, it is international news now, of course. Yeah. We have Mike go out there shooting videos of beavers breaking through the ice on the hospital campus. So that's neat, right? Uh, that There's world famous beavers living in Saskatoon now. So yeah, we of course learned that they lived within the city and likewise in the adjacent upstream Miwasa Valley Corridor, there are beavers in Beaver Creek. Uh, which is, is good because that wasn't always the case, right? During the kind of heyday of the fur trade area and even as late into the 1930s, 40s and 50s, there probably weren't any beavers in Beaver Creek. So it's good to see they've sort of been restored to that area. One of the interesting things was that there's actually a lot more beaver activity on islands than I initially assumed uh, would be present. And of all the lodges we surveyed, and that worked out to around 200 active and inactive lodges, about 20% were actually on the island. So nearly a fifth of all lodges on the in-channel islands, uh, Wilson's Island and, um, and some of the unnamed islands, the island above the Weir, places like that. It's kind of neat too. There were many more abandoned and inactive lodges than active lodges. And that gives us a sense that beavers have obviously been in this system for a considerable amount of time. As you probably know, the Gardner Dam sort of changed the hydrology of the South Saskatchewan River, especially through Saskatoon. So it's almost sort of hard now to know and remember what it was like before it was flood controlled or flow controlled. Certainly since the 60s, we've seen a fairly regular hydrologic pattern through that river. And we timed our survey concurrent with an extremely low flow. And the intent of that was to really get out there and see all the beaver activity. None of it was hiding under the water. And so we had to hike over a lot of islands and inland in quite a few places to try and get to the former edge of where the river was and see you know, where lodges were in the past. But in doing so, we got a great glimpse into what was there. And, and when we did it in 2017, there were about nine active lodges present in the managed area. And the managed, by our definition, was within the city of Saskatoon municipal boundaries. And the management in this case was some lethal management, but also the non-lethal forage management. But we had nine lodges within the managed, and we had about 25 active lodges in the unmanaged study area. So, you know anywhere conservatively from two to maybe six beavers per lodge six would be at the high end right you know there's there's at least hundreds of beavers probably within the miawasan valley authority uh, that we studied from kind of the, the southernmost extent of the mva through to as far as we could get 
on the South Saskatchewan in the city because in 2017 they were building the ring road and we couldn't go through that diversion. So uh, the initial intent was to do the whole survey, but as we're paddling our canoe down the river and going, "Uh oh, that doesn't look good. And there's (laughs) get out, portage, do not come through here. You will die signs everywhere. We kind of thought, "Mm, okay, so be it. This is the, the tail end of our study area. And we only ended up losing about a kilometer or two of river length. So for, for representative purposes, we saw more or less a good unmanaged study area in the conservation area within the Miawasa Valley Authority upstream of Saskatoon, and then that managed study area that was within the city of Saskatoon uh, municipal boundary. And I definitely remember you noting that there are a lot fewer beaver lodges within the managed area versus the unmanaged Yes, yeah, someone's read my thesis. You're on a short list, I think, and I appreciate that. So yeah, the the lower was about a 56% uh, lower density of active lodges in the managed, so within the city, as compared to the unmanaged river region. That was a significantly uh, different uh, value. So 56% lower, obviously, you know, fewer than half as many lodges. What what I did find interesting, and since you're a geography person, you'll you'll probably appreciate this. We're going to talk about distribution a little bit within the the city limit we found beavers to have actually more of a dispersed distribution and so they were spread out more evenly within the city limit which is more or less what we'd actually expect of territorial beavers right because they're going to establish a subpopulation within the larger population right their colony is that that smaller family population and they'll establish a territory and those lodges will sort of disperse right so within the city we found them dispersed Um, And that goes to show us that they're probably using more or less all of the habitat that they can and have available to them within the city to establish it about that density. Whereas out in the conservation area, we found beavers still clustered. And finding them still clustered means that within the MVA upstream of Saskatoon, they probably were still sort of focusing on areas of preferred resources. And there were still gaps in the distribution, meaning that there's even more potential for beavers to disperse into that habitat. Huh. Yeah, and I remember you saying that they prefer things like cottonwoods. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's right. They sort of cluster in on that preferred habitat uh, where available. And of course, cottonwoods prefer those those sandbars, as you're describing what we call RABs, the recent alluvial bar formation. And those young cottonwoods come up on those RABs, the recent alluvial bars and so that's where we see that succession of cottonwoods and of course the big cottonwood at the edge of the river channel was in the past the very young cottonwood at the edge of the river channel but the channel migrated away and the cottonwood kept getting older and that's what we have with that anastomosing sand bed system which is what we see in the South Saskatchewan River it's it's a very migrating channel through the valley floor yeah I never took a alluvial geography course so i had to look up anastomosing i learned something right yeah what does that mean perfect (laughs) hey that's that's kind of my goal as an educator is that someone listening to me is learning something yeah and that's sort of what we learned about where the beavers lived and then of course the other side of the study was it was really a product of the concern that beavers are in saskatoon they're chewing down all the trees they're causing all this habitat destruction And so we knew very early on in the study design that we were going to have to include some foraging analysis and some um, attempt to understand, are they actually chewing down all the trees? You know, what percentage of the riparian forest are beavers foraging in terms of what's available versus what's being harvested, I should say. 
And so when we did that, um, we learned that, interestingly, there's there's a markedly different riparian forest between the managed area within the city and the unmanaged area outside of the city. And, you know, in the discussion, we talked about one of the principal reasons for this, obviously, is there's a bunch of species of woody vegetation present in Saskatoon that are not present in the NBA. Japanese Zelkova, some of the uh, linden trees, and there's caraganas, although those are sometimes present in the, uh, the region outside. And there's black ash and some of these other trees that would not be present within the natural riparian corridor. And so it was interesting that beavers obviously had two different uh, forests from which to forage. But despite the difference in the composition, generally beavers preferred more or less three quarters of the same species. And so, of course, the, the ones you expect and hit on, right, cottonwoods, green ash, those were the main species. Manitoba maple harvested readily as well. So uh, we found, of course, they're foraging on that vegetation. In general, they're traveling about 30 meters from the river to cut down trees. And when they do travel that far, preferentially, they're selecting stems with a diameter of about 20 centimeters or less. Okay, So we do see places where beavers are obviously chewing down those great big cottonwoods. And in many situations, that's where the city and, and the public are becoming quite concerned that these stately monarchs of the riparian gallery forest are being taken down. And what's, I think, most devastating to people is that after the beaver chews down that big tree, they don't even take the wood from the trunk. It's such a waste, right? Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it because we know they preferentially want sticks that are about 20 centimeters in diameter. Okay. If all you have left are these great big trees with big old stumps at the bottom and the beaver wants a 20 centimeter stick, where does it have to go to find that stick? Up at the top of the tree, right? Huh. The sticks are still there and the beavers know that, right? They've evolved to know that. And so to get those smaller sticks down that they want, they have to drop the whole tree. And that's what we see as the great tragedy of beavers interacting with these large trees is they chew the whole thing down and then they leave all of it to waste. Well, Presumably, from a beaver's perspective, there's no waste. Their objective was harvest branches that are between 5 and 20 centimeters. And they had to drop down a 1-meter diameter cottonwood to get those branches. But when they dropped it down, here's a big pile of them readily available at the other end of the, of the stump. So that was something interesting and sort of an aha moment for, you know, informing the managers and others as to why beavers are chewing down those trees and the alternative being well they naturally want to chew down the little stuff but you haven't let that come up and you've only left the big ones so you've given them one option chew down the big trees to get at the little branches at the end of it alternatively you could protect those big trees and then provide alternative smaller trees to sample for to forage and then we'd see the objective you're hoping for, which is the beavers leave your big trees alone and they forage from that smaller vegetation of a size range that they would prefer. So that was kind of what we learned with foraging. And then, of course, you know, we got into some of the non-lethal management. And I think that sort of plays into one of your next questions. Yeah. So as is often the case with urban animals, uh, they can be a source of conflict. And I know we touched a little bit on that already. Uh, what are some of the concerns that people have with urban beavers? Right. So this is an interesting one, and it depends on whether people are operating from a place of fact or fiction. Some are operating more from a place of fiction and public hysteria. And this is, of course, the fear that beavers are out there just waiting to attack your domestic pets and that they're going to 
bear these tree cutting fangs on Fifi and Fifi's a goner. And certainly there have been some instances recorded where beavers did attack domestic dogs. Nearly all of those instances were an unleashed dog harassing a beaver that was between it and its family in the water. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily fault a grizzly bear for swatting you as you took a run at cubs. But of course, if a beaver does it, well, it's that beaver fault. They're a pest. They need to go. Okay. So that's one of the places where some members of the public have a contention. The second one, of course, is that if I drink or come in contact with water that a beaver was in, I'm almost sure to contract. Giardia. Beaver fever. Yeah, well, of course. That's right. (laughs) Giardia would be the correct term. And I'll live with that. People incorrectly refer to it as beaver fever, as if the beaver was the sole actor. And of course, we know that most Giardia infections are not a consequence of the beaver in the water. In fact, it's more typically the muskrat um, that transmit Giardia than the beaver. And even more so than that, it's livestock that are putting that Giardia bacteria back into the water and you're becoming infected with it. So again, it, there, there's not a really high rate of transmission of so-called beaver fever as a result of beavers in water. And, um, you know, environmental science, we have a saying, the solution to pollution is... Dilution. dilution. There you go, right? And so the solution to pollution is dilution. In an urban river, there's a lot of water. You know, you don't have to worry about those few beavers in there really being a, a potential threat. The truth is that the majority of human wildlife contact, and you'll note, I think you had initially said human animal uh, conflict. Don't ever forget, we're, we're two-legged apes walking around. We're also animals, okay? So it's animal-animal contact. The issue there is Water provides beavers with safety, right? They're, although they can stand on their hind legs and take a chomp at some smaller predators, realistically, in a land battle against nearly every predator, a beaver's going to lose. They just don't do well on land. They're, they're ungainly and awkward. But of course, in water, they're excellent swimmers and they're really quite effective at evading predators. So the more water beavers have, the easier ability they have to escape into it and find protection in it. And then the other thing is in Northern areas, Our beavers are dealing with the fact that it's freezing cold outside. They don't fully hibernate. They only become relatively less active in the winter. They still need to go out of a lodge to get food from a food cache and back into the lodge. And so if they don't have a sufficient water depth, they don't get the benefit of the insulating layer of ice to the water below it. That water freezes all the way to the bottom, and now they're trapped in a lodge without access to food. There's a lock on the fridge, you're starving to death, right? If, if that's your only option. And so beavers need sufficient water depth to maintain connectivity between the food cache and the entrance to the lodge. Of course, humans don't particularly like an abundance of extra water laying on the land. We, we have issues with that. Of course, water is going to become more scarce than it's been before in our lifetimes. And there's all sorts of global consequences associated with that. But having said that, we still don't like slack water, if you'll call it, or you can call it uh, ephemeral wetlands, you know, places that we don't feel should be wet, and they are wet. And uh, they're wet not forever, but for a short amount of time. And So we, we pretty actively as a species try and drain out any standing water that we find because we have the notion there's all sorts of negative consequences associated with that. Uh, beavers don't feel that way. They, of course, appreciate all the standing water they can get because there's safety associated with it. And of course, they they need that water, right? So there's one place where we run into human wildlife conflict is the, the very real flooding behavior. And then the other one is the beaver relies on felling woody vegetation 
as a lodge building material, as a dam building material, and as a means to wear down their ever-growing teeth, right? So even though in the summer beavers might eat up to, say, 80% herbaceous vegetation, subsisting on cattails and sedges and other green herbaceous plants, they still need to forage on wood to wear down those teeth. Uh, and wood is, is the vegetation that makes it through the winter for the beaver in, in northern climes. And of course, as I hinted at before, uh, as humans, we take ownership of our trees, especially within a city. You know, the city owns those trees. They place a cash value on those trees, in some cases as much as $10,000 um, or more on certain specimen trees of a particular size. And so when a beaver comes along and chews that down, we, we take that quite personally. And so for that reason, the beaver finds itself in the pest category. Either they flooded something out that the occupant or users of that land felt they shouldn't, or they chewed down some vegetation that the occupants or managers of that land felt that they shouldn't. So then how can managers uh, manage this conflict? Good. I was about to segue into that because, of course, we want to know what we can do, right? Well, there's actually a few different strategies, and I'll break them into three broad categories. Um, what's important to remember is when it comes to the natural world, doing nothing is a very appropriate and often under-selected management option. We have the ability to stand back and say, let nature run its course. And some people look at that as a dereliction of duty or an act of laziness, but realistically, these systems operated for tens of thousands of years, right? At least 10,000 years, maybe more. So we can't forget do nothing is a pretty valid management option that will run a course. Yes, they'll probably consume too much vegetation. And yes, they may flood an area. But eventually, when they consume too much vegetation, and they run out of things to eat, they'll move on. And then that area won't be flooded because the dam will break down and it's not getting the maintenance. So if we step back and do nothing, the problem will sort of take care of itself over time not on a time scale that we necessarily agree with, right? We want change sooner and we want to feel like we're doing something and sitting back and doing nothing doesn't give you the satisfaction that yes, I'm actively doing something to solve this problem. So we run into the other two categories of beaver management and those are lethal beaver management and non-lethal beaver management. Now lethal beaver management is exactly what it sounds like. We shoot beavers, we trap beavers, sometimes we live trap but then do a dispatch regardless. So it's just like a delayed uh, lethal removal. From a public perception perspective, it's much better because of course you can be seen hauling away this live beaver in a trap and saying, oh, don't worry, we're relocating it. And then, you know, promptly relocate it to heaven. Um, and that's a bit of a, a dark secret of the wildlife management industry. So just be careful when someone says they're doing a relocation, you say, just to be clear, is that a live relocation? And if so, to where? Hmm. Anyway, the relocation side of things falls into the non-lethal beaver management. And, and relocation with beavers is actually a bit of a, a tricky subject because, as I described, they're extremely territorial. And, you know, other than maybe some small portions of Lemuel-Wasson Valley Authority upstream of town, generally beaver habitat is occupied by beavers. And so when you try a relocation, often you're trying to take an animal that was moved out of a habitat because of an overpopulation and tried to get into this new habitat and establish a colony there. And you say, no, 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 this is not for you. We're going to relocate you elsewhere. The, the question is to where? Because the habitats that you might relocate it to are probably already occupied by beaver. That's why it's in your habitat in the first place. 
So it, it seems nice that, oh, well, you're just going to give it a new place to live. But realistically, there's not just an abundance of places that beavers can readily live. Basically, relocation is a nice notion. And following the end of the fur trade, when beaver numbers were nationally and, and internationally within North America at an all-time low, relocation was a very valuable and necessary part of beaver restoration. We needed to get populations of animals back out on the landscape to reproduce because they'd just been removed. That's all there is to it. They had been trapped to extirpation, not extinction because they weren't all gone, but locally beavers were extirpated from a lot of jurisdictions. And so there's of course, fascinating footage. Um, our, our friend, Archie Bellaney, we know him culturally as gray owl. Uh, this was an Irishman impersonating a first nations, uh, individual, but of course did a lot for beaver restoration and introduced beavers back into habitats they'd been extirpated from, whether that was rearing kits and hand delivering them or transporting live individuals or collaborating with his Parks Canada uh, superiors to reintroduce beavers into habitats. It gets more exciting in Idaho and other places. There were parachuted beavers that were thrown out of airplanes using uh, surplus World War II parachutes and dropped into these habitats uh, and tried to recolonize from there. The, the crash test beaver that they did, the piloting of the parachute and the drop on was a kindly fellow named Geronimo who bombed his way out of 17 or 18 aircraft as they're trying to figure this system out. And they rewarded him with food for doing it. And apparently after 10 times or so, Geronimo would just go climb into the cage because he knew there's snacks waiting for him and just understood, well, whatever. Next, I'm going to be flying through the air, but I've lived all these other times. I'll give it another go. And so... You know, there's some interesting stories of relocation, but relocations aren't the most effective form of beaver management. What I tend to advocate for and what our research really sought to look at was I identified that the two major sort of beaver human wildlife coexistence issues are flooding and foraging, right? Well, on a large river, beavers can't dam it. There's no beaver dam in our era, at least, that has stretched across the Saskatchewan River. I'd be terrified to see the beaver that succeeded in damming the entire Saskatchewan River, right? You can measure that channel in some parts and it's nearly a kilometer wide. So this is a massive system. Beavers aren't damming the Saskatchewan River. And for that reason, there's no real flood issue associated with beavers damming the river. Now, that's not true for all of Saskatoon, but my research, we pretty quickly eliminated flooding as a concern. And instead, we focused our effort on foraging as the major concern. And the non-lethal deterrent to foraging is what we call wire exclosures or wire enclosures if you're talking about the tree. That gets confusing. It's an exclosure to keep a beaver out. It's an enclosure to keep a tree in. Don't want those trees to get away. <laughs> That's right, as they're well known for their ability to get up and walk exactly. away. True if you're an ant, perhaps. Indeed. But for all, for all other trees, they're generally not going anywhere. <laughs> You know it's a good interview when you work in a Tolkien reference. So we we looked at these tree enclosures, uh, beaver exclosures, if you will, and basically um, we identified that these were a, a viable, uh, non-lethal, or at least that's what the, the gray literature, sort of the, the technical literature would tell us, was that these were a viable, um, non-lethal beaver management technique. And so my graduate research sought to see, okay, if so, 
are all non-lethal explosions created alike? Do they all provide the same ability to resist beaver foraging? We ended up kind of with a study design that as I did one round of transects to see where beavers were foraging initially, I had thought we might run into more of the wire wrapping, but we sort of found out that at that point in time, Saskatoon was wire wrapping opportunistically. And so when I hope to get into these tree enclosures on the surveys, I didn't necessarily find them. And we ended up having to go out and do sort of a dedicated search for the tree enclosures. And when we did that, we found about 135 of them within several city parks, plus 17 of the original we'd found surveying the vegetation transect. So a little over 150 enclosures. That gave us some data to look at. From that, we sort of determined that it was common for construction methods were used, sort of the two by two wire we call stucco wire, a two by four inch wire, we call that elk fence. We found chain link fence with about a two inch diameter diamond opening. And then we found 22 or 24 gauge poultry wire, which of course everyone knows commonly as chicken wire. And I know in your thesis, you had some recommendations about which ones were the most effective or not. And I, that was one of the things that I actually found the most fascinating. So could you talk about that results briefly? Yeah, definitely. So likewise, you know, I, I wanted to know what was effective because if we're going to get people to buy in to wire wrapping as a valid non-lethal uh, forage uh, protection mechanism. We need to make sure that the wire wrapping we're telling them to do is something that's reasonably going to work and is the most cost effective. And so from the literature, we sort of determined that enclosures of the two inch by two inch wire mesh opening um, installed at an average height of about 1.2 meters seem to be the most effective. Now, a beaver's on average foraging 30 to 45 centimeters above the ground. So why in the world would we need to go 1.2 meters tall? Well, you remember that in a northern city, when the beaver's foraging, they're not always standing on the ground. Sometimes they're atop a foot or a foot and a half or a meter of snow, right? Well, now they're foraging at 1.3, 1.2 meters. And so you need your wire cage to extend at least a beaver height above the snow depth. So that's where we saw some that had failed was they were just low wire wraps and of the sufficient material, but someone thought, well, I'll just make it short because the beaver's only this tall. Well, clearly they came back when there was a little snow on the ground or maybe two of them teamed up and said, give me a boost up there. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know exactly how that played out. I didn't see the camera footage, but the height was a big factor. So we want to say over a meter, two inch by two inch wire. And generally, right, if it's anchored, all the better. I've continued to do this work uh, of wire wrapping trees. And one of the things we found interesting is that you can buy anchors, and in some cases, those are just landscape staples, and you pound those in, or a little piece of rebar with a hook on the end, and you tap that in. But we've actually found some of these cages almost hold their position a little bit better. If you just take and you cut sort of the circular hoop off the bottom ring, and you're left with spikes that are all this long, and then you mm -hmm. sort of put a little bit of a bend on that and shove that down into the ground. And it, in doing so, sort of anchors itself in just a little bit. And sometimes... That little bit is all it takes. They come and they do kind of one push. It doesn't move and they go, yeah, moving on, hmm. right? Find find a lower hanging fruit to chew down. A big thing I would be remiss if I left is that in our case, and this isn't necessarily supported by the larger body of literature, but there's not a lot of literature on this subject. So every study is important. We found the two inch by four inch wire fencing to in many cases be ineffective. And the hypothesis there, again, we didn't observe this actively happening. 
but we saw portions where obviously this tree had been wrapped and then within the wrapping there was signs of more recent active foraging and when we talked to the city folks and said like hey when did you wrap those they go up oh, a year or two ago and we went "Ooh, that's interesting because that means that the beavers are actually foraging within an enclosure and what we sort of hypothesized and again it would be interesting to get some game camera footage of this is two inch by four inch was sufficient size that the beaver actually managed to get their teeth in on the four inch long axis take a bite and pull out right huh. and they couldn't get going at an angle to chew down the tree but they did cause damage within the enclosure and so from an effectiveness perspective the tree was still being harmed even inside of an enclosure we can't deem that to be effective so the poultry wire what we call chicken wire was often effective at preventing further foraging and it it's a very thin gauge wire without any real structural support so to get it to kind of work on the tree what they would do is make multiple wraps of the wire around the trunk so yes they're two inch spacing but multiple layers they sort of make a impenetrable mesh to a beaver tooth and that protected the tree from further beaver foraging but it got away from well the point of wire wrapping a tree is to keep the tree alive and although the beaver didn't chew the tree down, on those poultry wrap trees, they were just as dead as if the beaver had, because, of course, trees have this inconvenient habit of continuing to grow and expand in diameter. And as they did that, that wire mesh, the, the chicken wire, just girdled the tree. And it choked out the cambium and prevented the, the flow of water and nutrients within the, the living layer of the tree. And so those trees ultimately died anyway. So for that reason, we said, yes, beavers absolutely didn't chew through poultry wire wrapped many times around a tree. Good job. But your goal was to keep a tree alive and you failed in that goal. So for that reason, let's not use chicken wire or poultry wire, whatever. We want to yeah, call I it. found that so interesting. That was the one where I like scratched my head and I was like, huh. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, thinking about my own walks through the valley could identify some trees that were like that. So it was very. that's right. Yes, we've all seen one. It, it's. First off, unsightly, because there's no nice way to poultry wrap a tree. You know, when we do these these galvanized wire cages and they we want to install them about one and a half times the diameter of the tree, they sort of stand out away from the trunk. And within a couple seasons, they sort of fade a little bit and, and oxidize, they rust. And so it's sort of a dull color against the dull trunk spaced away from the trunk. You can almost not see it, like you, you quit noticing it. But you'll never stop noticing that tightly wrapped chicken wired tree trunk, especially once a tree dies. That didn't work at all. <laughs> For sure. So that's something that uh, many people still do because in many cases, you know, that's a landscaping standard and a developer standard. You know, you go to a greenhouse and you say, I've got deer chewing on these young trees. What should I do? And they say, oh, just throw poultry wire on there and that'll keep them from getting at it. And you do, and the deer quit browsing, and then a couple of years later, your tree dies, and you go, well, that's odd, you know, the, the deer obviously didn't do it. No, you did. You killed the tree, <laughs> right? So, yes, it works in the short term, but it's something that needs to be repeatedly removed and reapplied if that's the route you want to go down. And I tend to be of the mind, right, there's no sense doing something twice if you can do it once correctly. So we advocated for, from based on the research and our observations, that two inch by two inch stucco wire, which I've since found doing this professionally as a business is the most economical option to buy anyway. So there's that benefit of it. And when you, you know, you go to make the cages, you can actually just cut the ends of the wire a little long and then wrap them around themselves. So it, it becomes its own latching system. 
cut off that bottom hoop, it sort of becomes its own light anchor system. It's, it's a versatile product. So that's what we, uh, we advocate for. And if you hire my company to come out and do your, you know, non-lethal beaver coexistence work, that's absolutely the product I'm going to show up and use. So then knowing how people manage beaver human conflict, uh, what would you love to see in the future? What would you like to imagine urban beaver management looking like? Right. So for me, beaver management, I think, should be more about beaver coexistence. So in many cases, we see urban wildlife as something in competition for resources that we would otherwise have as our own. Historically, management has often looked at like, well, how can we remove the problem before it becomes a problem, right? And of course, the riparian ecosystems of North America were founded by beavers, shaped and maintained by beavers for millennia. And only very recently did white settlers come on the scene and start claiming these areas as our own and trying to manage them as if we're the only ones that had an invested stake in that habitat. Beavers were the original riparian managers. Even if we are the successors, in some cases, we're now looking at having to share these habitats with beavers again as their populations expand. And so rather than be in a constant problem wildlife situation, and we're always looking for a solution to a wildlife problem, I'd like us to consider beaver management as active urban beaver coexistence. Recognize that beavers are probably here to stay, barring some catastrophe. So realistically, they're going to be here to stay, as are we. And rather than be in constant competition, we're going to be in a form of coexistence where we recognize the role beavers play in a riparian ecosystem as the creators of riparian and wetland habitat through flooding, as uh, sort of nature's arborist out there clearing out old trees and making way for new trees through their activity, right? They play a disturbance regime role in the ecosystem. So they have a role to play. I think we need to coexist alongside them. And doing that, we make a plan to coexist with beavers. So rather than this reactive, oh my gosh, they just chewed down one of those stately English elms in Victoria Park. You know, get your pitchforks, get your torches. We've got to go out and kill these bucktooth beavers, right? We could recognize they're going to show up and they're going to try and harvest trees that we may consider valuable riparian specimens and that we want to maintain. And we could plan ahead of time to protect those trees. And likewise, there may be some portions of the riparian or wetland ecosystems where they could flood. And we have technologies called pond levelers or fence and pipe systems. Basically, what they allow you to do is control water levels in cooperation with the beaver. So they're integrated into a beaver dam. They're maintained by the beaver, but you adjust the height. So you sort of set the level at which you want the dam to drain and the beavers will live with less water. If you don't take it down too far, they won't build another dam. So they live with a little bit less water. You live with maybe a little more water than there would be if there weren't beavers on the land. But that's a fair deal. Neither one of you gets exactly everything that you want, but you both get enough of what you want that you can coexist. And that's what really I would like to see the future of beaver management look like. It's going to be active coexistence, and it's going to be habitat and management planning rather than reaction. That's a really wonderful vision, and I think you encapsulated it really well. And I'm wondering, is there any additional things you'd like to add about how beavers modify their landscape? Yeah, sure. So 
you know, what did I learn about how they modify their urban habitats, right? How's that different from natural areas? Well, the big thing is that obviously um, in an urban area, there's a relative absence of predators. It was common to see beaver lodges in places that were seemingly susceptible to predation. And we wouldn't expect to see that in natural areas, but at an urban area, you went like, well, they don't have to worry about it because nothing's ever going to crawl up in there and get them. Hmm. So they could be in not very well-protected lodges on the edge of a golf course or the edge of a water treatment facility. And you'd go like, I wouldn't expect to see a lodge built just like that in a natural system, but I guess it works here because there's nobody to come in and predate upon them. To that point, golf courses, water treatment facilities, stormwater ponds, those are all anthropogenic sources of water, right? We dig a dugout on a golf course and it now fills with water. That wouldn't have existed had it not been manufactured. The beaver doesn't care. To them, it's potential habitat, right? There's standing water there. So we see beavers in places in urban areas that you would never expect, right? I spent a lot of time in the backcountry. I'm yet to run across a golf course out there. And, <laughs> and likewise, you know, when I'm in an urban area, I'm not at all surprised to see beavers and Canada geese and other things living in this naturalized environment. There are places that beavers and other animals get into where they're not welcome, especially water treatment facilities and places like that. You can't have beavers living in those ponds. And so in, in those situations, that's where we kind of have to really step in and keep beavers out of human uh, infrastructure. Okay. And then the other thing that, that we see beavers sort of doing is they take advantage of our infrastructure to meet their goals. So a beaver has to build a dam to hold back water. Um, one of the ways that they repeatedly find themselves getting into trouble is all of these township roads through former riparian areas or wetland areas are basically long dams that leak through one or two spots called culverts. A beaver comes along, plugs those one or two culverts, and they've just got 99% of the work of building this huge dam done for them. All they had to do was patch a couple holes. And we go, oh, those darn beavers, how dare they go and build that dam there? You know, what were they thinking? We need that culvert to drain the water. Well, yeah, but of course they need the opposite of that. And so that's something we see common in rural or urban or suburban areas. And, and of course, that's a way that beavers have capitalized on human infrastructure that wouldn't be present in a, a, a non-anthropogenically influenced natural area. And then I guess the other thing that was neat is we saw beavers sort of foraging on vegetation and selectively shifting the composition of forest based on those plants they left behind. So where beavers aren't actively chewing down caragana because they didn't evolve alongside them and they're maybe not as familiar with them. You know, the native plants that still exist in those portions of the forest are already under competition for the pool of resources. And even if they do manage to get large enough, then some beaver that is used to chewing down those native species comes in and chews them down and further shifts the composition of that stand to the invasive plant. And so that was something that we recognized. Beavers have a role to play in the community composition of the forest because whether they like it or not, they're riparian managers and parks managers, and, and they're going to shift the community based on their needs, regardless of what our desire for that community would necessarily be. Right. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, you mentioned that there might be a possibility to deal with the fact that beavers are kind of picky eaters to right. maybe get them more familiar with other forage options wasn't that my hope in my discussion section of my thesis yes i thought you know saskatoon and, and the miawasan valley spend all of this time and money trying to remove european buckthorn which does have armament on it that's the thorn of the buckthorn 
but it's not on the entire plant and beavers chew down other plants with armaments. So it's not unheard of to think that they could chew this down. And so my suggestion, and this is where you can run wild in a discussion section. Gotta love discussion. Exactly. Was what if we could train beavers to be selective removers of that European buckthorn? Now we don't have to send out Miawasan Valley Authority volunteers to cut this stuff down and bag it and burn it. We just get the beavers to go in there and chew it down and, and consume it and use it in lodges and dams. And in doing so, hopefully leave behind some of the more preferred things. Um, again, that was a, a point of discussion and a hopeful thing. There have been efforts, as I cited in the thesis, that beavers are trained to target salt cedar and tamarisk and, and others. But of course, if the preferred forage is available and not protected, it's unlikely that they're going to go for the less desirable, unheard of invasive. But again, it, it's not something that is out of the realm of possibilities. So we can hypothesize that that would be an interesting applied forage management uh, technique. And one where, you know, we're, we're putting beavers to work for us, doing something they're going to do regardless. Yeah, harnessing what they do best. That's right. You know, I'm sure there's some labor laws associated with that, but we haven't extended those to beavers yet, as best as I'm aware. So we'll get away with it for a few decades at least. <laughs> So yeah, I'm wondering then, uh, what are some common questions you get asked and could you answer them? Sure. Obviously people see beavers and they have a natural curiosity about what's the family dynamic. I think that we look at a beaver family and it's, it's like, oh, that's neat. That sort of looks like my family, right? But there's no right way to make a family. And then there's that curiosity, like, I wonder how many kids they have and where they live and how long they live at home. And are their parents going to kick them out at 18? And all those sorts of questions, you can relate back to ourselves. That's, that's where you make so many connections with nature, right? So people want to know how many beavers live in the family. Well, as I said, typically you have the adult breeding pair, so male and female, non-related, although sometimes some degree of relation, but we try and keep that relationship coefficient low. So non-related male and female, uh, then you have their young of the year. So last year's offspring, they might've started out with as many as six. Realistically, often it's two or three that make it through into their second year, right? They live through that first year. And then say this is the summer of the year, you're going to have that year's young. And again, that can be anywhere from two to six, typically two, three, four. So in that little beaver family, I have three age classes, the adults, the sub-adults, and then the infants, right? And I will keep that rolling. So at two years of age, the previous year of the young are going to get kicked out of that colony and sent to disperse elsewhere. And that's where they go out to sort of seek their own colonies and again, try and find unrelated mates and keep that establishment of a beaver population going from there. So when we see that lodge, typically we see one kind of primary lodge, sometimes a little secondary lodge around 10-ish beavers maybe in a colony. My favorite colony in Saskatoon, at least when I was there in 2017, 2018, was straight across from the Besborough. There's this great big toppled birch, and below that there was an active lodge with six beavers in it. I loved kind of hanging out and watching the beavers and watching the bez, and, and uh, that was, you know, a, a real connection in Saskatoon. And so that was neat. Okay. What else do I get asked about? I get asked about diet, obviously. Do beavers eat fish? No. That was a, a uh, children's story 
from, I think, the UK where beavers ate fish. And unfortunately, it gained a lot of traction and people believed that beavers ate fish and thus were an enemy of fish. And this was used as yet another means to justify their removal. If we want fish, we need to get rid of beavers. Couldn't be further from the truth, right? There's lots of beaver restoration work that shows salmonid restoration, especially along the West Coast. These fish reared in streams that were beaver dominated and beaver mediated. And so they really flourish in beaver mediated systems. And so fish actually depend on beavers in many cases uh, for successful reproduction and life cycling. So uh, they don't eat fish. They do eat wood, of course, as we hinted at, but wood is not the only part of the diet. It gets them through the winter because it forms that food cache, which is sort of planted down into benthic substrates and then grows upwards towards the surface from there. So a, a living column of, of food to see them through the winter. Hmm. You can't do that with herbaceous plants because they don't last. So that's where, you know, we recognize beavers eat wood. But in the summer, uh, their beavers are out there, they're grazers, they're chewing down graminoids so that the grasses and grass-like plants, and that's a major component of their diet. Hmm. On the diet subject, and this is a bit of a, you know, maybe an overshare on the beaver's part, but they're coprophagic, which is a polite way of saying they'll eat their own feces. Of course, when we're trying to extract nutrients from woody vegetation and any plant material for that matter, it's a long process. The animals that do it well are ruminants, and ruminants have that advantage of four chambers of the stomach and this cud chewing process. Beavers don't have those chambers of the stomach, but what they do have is this habit of re-ingesting their feces and giving it a second run through the digestive process. And in that second run, it's sort of been pre-digested and they extract more nutrients from there. We don't see it because it happens in the lodge mostly. So there's the diet question. And then another one people ask, okay, so they're in under the ice. Do they hibernate? Do they go to sleep in the lodge and wake up in the spring? No. They reduce their activity. Sometimes their body temperature drops very low and they're nearly frozen to death, but they stay just warm enough not to die, really minimize activity, but they don't hibernate. They're still going to have to eat all winter long, much less. And that's why they can sort of subsist on that food cache, but they don't do a true hibernation. You know, the beaver's more than an animal, it's an ecosystem. So people ask me, what animals do beavers benefit? And the point I like to remind them is, well, you know, we at Cows and Fish used a value that about 85% of all wildlife in Alberta used a riparian area at some point in its life cycle. Beavers create, restore, maintain riparian areas. So one animal benefiting about 85% of the other animals through some point in their life cycle uh, and I'm talking everything from migratory waterfowl, which are the obvious ones, to moose, to deer, to muskrat, to marten, to mink, to fish, to invertebrates, to plants, fungi, algaes, all these other things. You know, there's, there's a whole ecosystem that benefits from having beavers present. They deserve some respect. And uh, those that came before us here paid beavers lots of respect as an important cultural figure and a creator of earth and habitat and settlers didn't necessarily realize how important beavers were and, and still don't in some cases. And so rather than coexist, we compete. And that doesn't end well for either of us. I think that's kind of what I had to cover. Was there anything based on our discussion that you wanted to ask? No, this is really wonderful. I learned so many different things. You've definitely expanded my understanding of beavers in the ecosystem. It seems to be something a lot of people are caring about right now in Saskatoon because oh, yeah. they're seeing so many. 
Right. That's right. And, and as I said, you know, many people are perceiving um, that destruction associated with them. And of course, that's not so much the beaver's fault as it is a lack of consistent management effort. Now, I've been told since I left that the city of, of Saskatoon's Park Department has continued to collaborate and they've come towards more of sort of an, an integrated strategy. And there's there's some thought and consideration being into where the management efforts are being placed. So yeah, I'm talking to Jeff Boone next about that. I was so. going to say, do you know Jeff Boone? I do. Good. He'll educate you on that as well. But uh, I'm quite looking forward to the podcast episode when it comes out. And like I said, if there's anything else that comes up, by all means, feel free to reach out and we can follow up from there. But thanks, Adrian. Take care. We'll see you later. All right. You too. Bye. Clearly. Beavers are important ecosystem engineers, with a part to play in the lives of the wildlife around them. But, because we share the city with them, we tend to come in conflict. City dwellers and beavers tend to have different goals when it comes to forest and water management. While beavers build dams because they need water to stay safe and store food for the winter, we prefer land without excess water. Similarly, beavers need trees for food and to wear down their ever-growing teeth. We love big trees, and tend to be sad when they're chewed down. How do we usually respond to this disagreement? Wildlife managers can use lethal or non-lethal management approaches. Kirby England studied non-lethal management, and warns that relocation may not be the best approach. It is easier to create a stucco wire enclosure around trees we want to protect. For flooding, we can compromise by adding pond levelers to dams. I hope that in the future, we can reduce conflict, but this will involve proactive planning and compromise. Every time I see a beaver on my walk, I think about the resilience and recovery of this incredible species. I hope we will have beavers in Beaver Creek for generations to come. Thank you for listening.